We come to the fourth of the discernment passages. In the very familiar uh, 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes about the observance of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation, judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now in the light of this most serious passage, it appears to me that most Sunday morning church members are eligible either for the hospital or the graveyard. When we see the careless way we so often rush through this ordinance, tacked on to the end of a Sunday service, we marvel that we survive. It is a memorial. We remember our Lord's death for us until he comes for us. And to partake worthily doesn't mean, of course, that we are worthy, but is to come with proper regard for what he wrote for us on the cross. And we're not ready to partake until we have examined ourselves and searched our hearts. There's plenty of self-justification today, but not much self-judgment. You remember the verse that says, and he willing to justify himself said. And I don't know of any more saying that's going on today than this, we're always justifying ourselves. Mel Trotter had a prayer meeting once where everybody had prayed but one man. Mel said, Brother, pray. And he said, I can't. Mel said, What's the matter? Nothing. Just can't pray. Mel said, Get down on your knees and confess your sins. He said, Well, I can't think of a thing, Mr. Trotter. He said, Get down there and confess your sins. He said, I can't think of a thing. Mel said, Get down there and guess at it. And he got down on his knees and guessed at it and guessed it the very first time. <laughs> you know, if we could ever get quiet enough and turn TV off long enough and wait on the Lord quietly enough, we wouldn't have to guess at it. We'd know what the trouble is. But there's not much self-judgment. And I don't know of any better place for revival to begin than at the Lord's table. I don't know that I've heard of one beginning just there, but why not? When we stop justifying ourselves and begin judging ourselves, we're missing a great opportunity for revival when we hurry through the Lord's Supper. And we're inviting the judgment of God. 
We make a mockery of it. If you want to know how much discernment there is among us, ask your average church member what the Lord's Supper means to him. If it doesn't mean much, then maybe the Lord's death doesn't mean much. And if the Lord's death doesn't mean much, then maybe the Lord doesn't mean much. But the Lord's Supper not only looks back to his death and forward to his return, it has significance for us now. The Passover lamb was eaten. You remember, the blood was sprinkled on the doorpost, but the lamb was eaten, and Christ is the bread of life, our meat and our drink. Now, the elements of the Lord's Supper are only symbols. They don't convey grace. But as we partake, we are reminded, or we ought to be, that Christ is not only our Savior, but he's our sustenance. Our Lord wasn't talking about the Lord's Supper in John 6, but every time I partake of the Lord's Supper, I think of John 6. Sometimes in our reaction to the sacramentarianism, we go so far as to make very little of the memorial supper. That's not a matter of transubstantiation or consubstantiation. There's no spiritual presence in the bread and cup. But we are declaring, among other things, whether we know it or not, we are declaring at the Lord's table that Christ is our food and our drink, and that we are living by the constant appropriation of the living Christ for every need. Are you aware that that's what you're saying? Here again a revival could begin. When we memorialize his death, we're looking to Christ's the same yesterday when we look forward to his return, we're looking to Christ the same forever and in the future, but he's the same today and we're weak on that point. But our efficiency without his sufficiency is only a deficiency. Now discerning the Lord's body in its wider sense, and I'm thinking of that tonight, suggests more than is immediately involved. It means being aware of all that we are and all that we have in Christ, not only for salvation, but for sustenance, for the supply of every need and the answer to every problem. I've said it through all these years that when churches try so hard to promote evangelism and missions and social action and all the rest of it in drives and campaigns to enlist half-hearted church members to do what they don't want to do anyway, that if only Christians and churches realize what we are and what we have in Christ, all these things we try to get them to do would be the spontaneous expression of the outliving of the inliving Lord. We've majored on the stream instead of the spring, and we even talk maybe too much about revival. I have been talking a good deal lately, not about revival, but about vival. Now, there is no such word, but uh, when I need a word and can't find it, I make one. Every word in the dictionary is made by somebody. I've got as good a right as anybody else making a new word if I want to. I believe the great need today is vival, and by that I mean just normal New Testament Christianity. And if we had vival, we wouldn't need revival. Sometimes I hear it said, we have a revival in our church every Sunday. Well, I wouldn't want to belong to a church like that. You mean it died down during the week and they had to revive it again every Sunday? If we abide, we will abound in all the things we work so hard trying to get church members to do. And when we discern what we have in Christ and avail ourselves of it, that's it. 
Average revival's a drive for more church members, let's face it. We already have too many of the kind that most of them are. I know that so far as my own crowd is concerned, they tell me that two million of them can't be located and two million more don't belong where they live. And I don't know how many more living so low spiritually you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship. I read and hear almost nothing on the need of revival within the church. But the last word of our Lord to the church was not the Great Commission. And he's standing among the churches today. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Well, that kind of preaching is not popular. Finney had a sermon on how to preach so as to convert nobody. He said, preach on sin but don't name any of the sins of the congregation. They'll all go out shaking their heads and saying sin's mighty bad, but they won't do anything about it. But you name something. Somebody will get offended, maybe. But uh, I'd rather they'd go out mad than just go out. Anything's better than nothing. When Jesus talked to the woman at Jacob's well, he talked about the water of life and where's the best place to worship, and those are good subjects. But she didn't get under conviction till he named something. Go call thy husband. Uh-oh. She'd had too many of them already. When she went home, she said, Come see a man who told me not about the water of life, not about where's the best place to worship. Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? We need a lot of preaching today that tells folks what they're doing and calling it sin, as God does. We have a lot of activism today. This is an activist period. We have the idea if we can get enough church people doing enough things, that'll take care of it. You might as well tell a sick man to go out and act like a well man that that'll make a well man out of him. It won't. There's something wrong with a sick man. You have to deal with the trouble, and then he'll normally act like a well man. You might as well send a man with double pneumonia out on a bear hunt as to send the average church member who's not right with God out doing church visiting. He'll do more harm than good. When the Israelites were defeated at Ai, Joshua lay on his face, and that's a good posture, and more people ought to be that way, but God said, Get up. This is no time for a prayer meeting. Israel hath sinned. And as much as I believe in prayer meetings, all the prayer meetings in the world won't take care of the situation in a church or fellowship of Christians until sin is dealt with. When we are what we ought to be, we'll do what we ought to do. Jesus didn't say bear witness. He said be witnesses. When you are one, you'll bear witness. The word Christian is a noun, it's also an adjective. We say a man's a Christian, that's a noun. We say he's a Christian man, that's an adjective. We need more adjective Christians, more Christian Christians. Evangelism merely reproduces whatever brand of Christianity the church that's doing the evangelizing happens to have. That's all. If it's low and weak, it'll be a weak brand of evangelism, a weak brand of church member. You'll just get more of the same crowd. We're looking everywhere else except in the church today for revival. But my Lord was standing among churches when he said, Repent. A.W. Tozer used to say that the first obligation of the church is not to spread the gospel. 
but to be spiritually worthy to spread it. He said, the Lord said, go ye, but he first said, carry ye. And that means being aware of and availing ourselves of all that's ours in Christ. And if the time and money and effort that we spend trying to stimulate Christians to evangelism and in missionary conferences and all the rest of it, and I've spoken to every evangelistic conference I believe now in my own denomination all over this country, and we get several thousand preachers there together every time. We have a great time, but I keep on saying it. If we spent the time that we spend on that in spiritual discernment of what we are and what we have in our Lord, pep rallies and even revivals would be unnecessary. I've read of a man who uh, eked out an existence on a rocky little piece of ground all his life, and when he died, his son took over and found all under the ground and became a millionaire. Most of our people are just like that first farmer. They don't know what they have. Some Christians don't know what they have. Others know theologically and theoretically, but they don't lay hold on it. And a few know it and go after it. Some Christians don't know there is a promised land. Some stand on Jordan's stormy banks and cast a wishful eye all their days toward Canaan's fair and happy land where their possessions lie. Well, we haven't got any business saying that. We ought to cross over Jordan and take it. We have so many saints living on second-hand reports and travel brochures of Canaan. Just like some of these people that put tourist stickers all over their baggage and never have been out of the county. Now you've read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret and you know that after years of striving in defeat he found the wonderful truth of the vine and the branch and that it wasn't so much his faith as the Lord's faithfulness. He found out what he had in Jesus Christ, just that. Paul said, having nothing and possessing all things, that's the master paradox of them all. And he said, I have everything, Paul, Paulus, Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things to come, everything's mine. In him he found out what he had. You can't do anything. The devil can't do anything with a man who has that in his heart. If you've got everything and don't have anything, what can the devil do with you? The devil says, I'll give you this and I'll give you that. And the Christian says, you can't. I've got everything. And then the devil says, I'll take this away and I'll take that away. And the Christian says, you can't. I don't have anything. What are you going to do with a Christian like that? You can't head him off if you take off his head. There's no way you can stop him. Paul had only stocks for his feet and bonds for his wrists. Those were the only stocks and bonds he had. But he said, all I want is to know him and his, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and conformity to his death. And with most of us, it's me and mine. You get a man away from me and mine to him and his, and you're having a revival. John Wesley shook England because he found out what he had in Christ. England was in a bad way before Wesley. The Puritans they were all dead, and the Methodists hadn't been born. And then that frustrated preacher, that Oxford man, whose father and grandfather and great-grandfather had all been preachers and whose mother was one of the greatest women of all time, separated man to man of prayer and a missionary, and not ready to preach, as I said to the preacher boys at SMU a few years ago, 
thought it was a mighty good time and place to say that Wesley had the most formidable qualifications for the ministry I ever heard about, except that he wasn't ready to preach. And then he found out what he had in Jesus Christ and changed the course of England and said it singing what his brother wrote over a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. If we cleaned up the temples of our bodies today and the church cleaned up the temple of the church, we'd have what happened when my Lord cleaned up that temple one time. They had a revival, you remember. The blind came in sightless and went out seeing, and the lame came in limping and went out leaping, and the little children waved palm branches and cried, Hosanna. The only people who objected were the Pharisees. They would. They had a little caucus over in one corner and came up and said, Hearest thou what these say? These kids are making too much noise in the temple. Jesus said, Yes, and if you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. The better Christian you are, the more childlike, not childish. A revival is when childish church members become childlike. Matthew 18, 3, except you be converted and become as little children. Well, they had a wonderful time there. I believe the house of God ought to be an exciting place. I think something ought to happen. We're dealing with divine electricity, and everybody ought to get a charge or a shock, one of the two. If they get blessed, they'll go out charged, and if they don't, they'll go out shocked. But something ought to happen. So many of our meetings are so dry. I heard of a pastor who met one of his delinquent members down the street and said, I haven't seen you for Sundays now. No, I said, you know how it's been. The children have been sick, and then it's rained and rained and rained. And the preacher said, well, it's always dry at church. He said, yeah, that's another reason why I haven't been coming. It oughtn't be that way. I've waded through some of these services that I marvel that anybody was there at all. I was up at a big supper in Detroit some time ago, and Dan McBride was there. goes around picking his guitar and taking off on us Southern Baptists, you know, tiptoe through the tithers and all the rest of it. Well, he was telling about this little boy in church who was bored to death and he'd looked through the songbook and he'd drawn all the pictures he knew how to draw and finally he said, Mama, what's that flag over there on the pulpit? And she said, well, that's the American flag. And uh, what's that one? That's the Christian flag. And what's the little one with all the stars in it? She said, that's the service flag for those who have died in the service. He said, the morning service or the evening service? <laughs> It oughtn't be like that. And I tell you, when, when we get right, it won't be like that. And I thank God for whatever's genuine in the youth movements today, and much of it is. Like everything else, it's mixed. And that's true with us older folks too, but I thank God for what's going on among the kids today. Much of it has the touch of the Lord upon it. But it's not all just young people. I live across the street in Greensboro from the University of North Carolina there. And the other day my pastor, Dr. Claude Bowen, said, well, it's been two years ago now, he said, I want you to meet a remarkable new Christian. And Dr. Taylor, who was the head of the drama department of the university there for years and years, and one of the buildings is named for him. He was an infidel into his 70s. And his wife prayed for 45 years that he'd be saved. 
And one night, he just woke up in the middle of the night and got converted. Hadn't been to a revival. Said, God just showed me what a sinner I was, and I got saved. Now, you talk about a brand new Christian in his 70, I think it's 76 now. I'm having a lot of fellowship with him. He puts me under conviction because he's got an effervescence about him. And I've been one a long time, and it really has caused me some serious thought. He's like a child with a brand new toy. You never saw anything like it. He wants to go everywhere, and he takes them as they come. He doesn't know one church from another, and that's a mighty good thing, I think, after all. You know, today, if you preach here, you can't preach over here. He doesn't know anything about that. The happiest fellow in this world, you know, is a brand new Christian before he's met too many Bible scholars. <laughs> so he's just going around, enjoying it, having the time of his life. There's a meeting in Richmond some years ago, where an old boy got saved and joined the church on Sunday morning. He didn't know any better than to come to church every night that week. He thought you were supposed to. Some of the deacons hadn't caught on, but he did. And I'd see him out there, and I couldn't see some of the deacons. Now, I'd see that old boy every night, and I found myself praying, Lord, don't let him catch on. Don't let him get over this radiance of being a brand new Christian. Now, here's a man in his 70s who suddenly discovered what God had for him in Jesus Christ. And I left to be with that man. He brought us some flowers to the hospital the other day, and he brought us some uh, food to the apartment, and he just, this is it. Just a radiant New Testament Christian. So uh, let us old senior citizens in on this thing, too. We're having revival. Have you got anything that'll match that? You older folks here. I got under conviction. I see a lot of my crowd here tonight. Have you had anything like that lately in your own experience? No reason why we shouldn't. I'm not a pauper, I'm a prince. My father's rich in houses and lands. He holds the wealth of the world in his hands. And though exiled on earth, yet still like me saying, all praise to the Lord, I'm a child of the King. Beloved, the biggest business before us today, and it precedes all others, and from it all others proceed, is to discern and to discover, to perceive and to possess what we have in Christ, who though he was uh, rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. We appreciate it. But are you appropriating it? Long ago in Moody Institute, I heard a visiting preacher there tell about walking down the street by a delicatessen shop, and he said, I saw a lovely cake in the window, and I pressed my nose against the window pane and looked at it. That was appreciation. He said, next day I was invited out to dinner, and they had the cake on the table, and that was appropriation. So many saints go up and down through the Bible just window shopping. They look at this verse and that verse and say, isn't that wonderful? They look at all the displays, but they don't feed upon it. They hear sermons about the milk and honey, and uh, they say they're dwelling in Beulah land, but they don't have any figs and pomegranates. About all, some of them can scare up crab apples. Oh, friend, are you appropriating? Now my Lord said in this sixth chapter of John, Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. And he drove his crowd away with that. 
We work hard today trying to build up a crowd. The Lord drove away a great many of his congregations. He did here. The crowd thinned out. I read it's a progressive diminution in the crowd. Verse 6, they said, this is a hard saying. I can't take it. And further on from that time, many went back. And he finally said to the disciples, the irreducible minimum. Are you going away too? And poor old Peter said, Lord, where would we go? You stand on Sunday morning and tell the average congregation, except they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they don't have his life. They'll say, I don't like this kind of preaching. I'm going over to the memorial church and hear Dr. Sound and Brass give book reviews. I don't like this kind of preaching. That'll thin out any crowd. But I don't think we're going to lay hold upon all that we have in Jesus Christ until we get desperate about it. I believe that there's only one weapon left to the church today, and that's desperate prayer. Like old Jehoshaphat who said, Lord, we know not what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Wouldn't it be a great thing if any president of the United States would have gotten up or would get up and say, fellow Americans, we don't know what to do. They don't. But our eyes are upon God. Is anybody ever going to say that in Congress? Is anybody ever going to say that in the UN? Is anybody ever going to say that in the universities and the science centers? We don't know what to do. We are faced by a combination of forces that can be met only by divine intervention, but as long as we've got a few tricks up our sleeve, God won't touch it. God never saves a man who's trying to save himself. If you're trying to save yourself tonight, that's the reason you're not saved, because God won't touch it till you quit kicking. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Old Jehoshaphat had quit kicking. Sometimes a lifeguard has to knock out a drowning man uh, to rescue him, lest in his desperation he hang on so tightly. They both go down. I'm so tired of the superficiality of our concern today. I see so little desperation. Wouldn't you think that our churches would be filled with penitent worshipers praying all night if necessary? Why did the sinners revel all night? And most of the church members sit up anyhow for the late, 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 late show feasting on the filth of Sodom and Gomorrah brought into the living room. I went to a town the other day where the church has a glass front. You can walk along the street and see the service going on. I said, no time for a glass front. Not enough going on. They ought to wall up the place till something happens on the inside. What would happen if the lights burned late in our sanctuaries? I've wondered about Greensboro, about 150,000 people there. I've wondered what would happen in this town if the Christians, regardless of denomination, would get so bothered that some night they would just automatically fill up the Colosseum just to pray. I don't mean one of these nice little organized prayer meetings worked up by a committee, you know, a group of the unfit appointed by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. I don't mean one of these nice little prayer meetings with the mayor there to make a speech. I mean a sure enough prayer meeting in holy desperation. I wonder what would happen. I think sinners walking the street would say, what's going on here? 
prayer meeting. Just a prayer meeting? Yes. What about, well, wouldn't you know? I think he'd say, well, if it's getting that bad, maybe I ought to give it a second thought. Old Joel said, I'm tired of the pagans going by saying, where's your God? And they're going to the church today asking just that. And we're proceeding on a business as usual basis and nothing's as usual, never will be as usual again. The emergency requires urgency. When somebody's desperately sick in your home, you tear up the regular schedule of the household and adjust it to the emergency. When disaster strikes town, uh, business closes down, the inhabitants leave town, the military may take over. The ambulance and the fire truck go down through the middle of town disregarding traffic signals and speed limits because there's an emergency. If your house were on fire and I came down the street and saw the situation, I'd be justified in tearing the door down if I could anything to advise you of the situation. You wouldn't expect me to come in as usual, would you? Pardon me, but there seems to be a conflagration in the neighborhood and I'd advise you to remove your carcass from this vicinity. (laughs) You'd expect me to say, get out of here! The place is on fire. Now, I don't mean panic is the answer. Some people do get panicky in a fire and throw clocks out the window and carry feather pillows downstairs and do all sorts of silly things. Sometimes Christians act like that. I don't mean panic, but I do mean concern. I don't see much of it. I never see most of the members of any church that I ever go to during the revival because they don't think they're worth going to. Now, that doesn't embarrass me a great deal. I've reached the age where I'm not trying to project an image and build up a reputation. But we claim to have the answer to every need of humanity. And if we believe what we pretend to, no church auditorium to hold people. And if we don't believe it, we're the worst hypocrites on earth to preach and promote something that most of its adherents wouldn't miss if they lost it. The average church member wouldn't miss his religion much if it got away from him. There's something wrong with our Christianity when we have to beg our own crowd to come to church to hear about it. And I'm ashamed of the world going by looking at a corporal's guard huddled in a lumberyard empty benches singing, Revive Us Again. If I were a sinner, I think I'd, uh, if I saw that crowd, that little handful, trying to recruit a few more to join the army of the Lord when most of what they had already gone AWOL, I think I'd say either Christianity is not what it's supposed to be or they've been sold a cheap brand and inoculated with a mild form till they're immunized against the real thing. And I'd get up and say, where's your God? What do you mean singing onward Christian soldiers when most of your army is deserters? What do you mean, my Jesus? I love thee, I know thou art mine, for thee all the follies of sin are resigned. They haven't resigned them. They don't intend to do it. Any other organization or business or secret order or political party or social club with no more loyalty to its founder that took no more joy in its program and used as much raw material and turned out as poor a finished product as the average church does to be out of business. 
I'm embarrassed when the pagans walk by our churches and look in on our feeble ceremonies, swapping a few members from one church to another, moving corpses from one mortician to another, preaching a dynamite gospel and living firecracker lives. I've sat in churches again and again and said, Lord, you must abort more than this with your blood. This can't be it. Not this. I can't accept it as normal. I could take it easy. I'm supposed to be taking it easy. I've reached the age where I should be in a rocking chair drawing my social security and reminiscing about the good old days that weren't so good after all. But we ought to be ashamed, and as Joel says, the preachers ought to weep between the porch and the altar. Cry, Lord, I'm tired of the pagans going by where's your God. But there's no desperation about it. Have you noticed that all the way through the Bible, the people who got the greatest blessing from God were desperate people? You name it, Jacob at Jabbok, Moses at the Red Sea, Gideon in the 300, David and Goliath, the four lepers in the gate, Bartimaeus, the Syrophoenician woman, and in our Lord's parables, the woman and the judge and the man with company at midnight, no bread, every one of them desperate. And they got what they went after, but there was one chap who stood head and shoulders above that crowd, but they got their blessing and he missed his, and he was the rich young ruler. He could take it or leave it, and as long as you can take it or leave it, you'll leave it. But oh, I love to think of that poor sick woman who'd spent all her money, her health was gone, money was gone, but her faith was not gone, and another morning dawned, just like all other mornings, she got up to face another day a little closer to certain death. She heard a noise outside and people were scurrying around. She said, what's going on? They said, Jesus of Nazareth's going through town. She wrapped some old rag of a dress around her and got out there and said, he's only a few yards down there. If I can get through and touch him, I'll be healed. And you know when you're desperate, you'll do what you can't do. They always get through to Jesus when they're desperate. Now I'm sure those folks must have been irritated by her pushing through the crowd. Ladies don't do that unless there's a sale on at the department store. They don't usually do that. And I'm sure they said, what does she mean? Look at that old dress. Why would she barge through the crowd like this? Why doesn't she stay back where she belongs? But if you were dying of an incurable disease, and just a few yards ahead of you is someone who, if you could just touch the hem of his garment, you'd be well again. You'd make it. And I like the two little words that show up in Mark 5, throng and touch. Many thronged him, she touched him. And then both words in one verse, Jesus said, who touched me? That's a dramatic moment. And poor old Peter, as usual, talking out of turn, didn't know what he said. Peter said, not knowing what he said, the Bible says that was typical. He was the most American of all the disciples. And he said, Lord, you see the crowd shoving and pushing. Why would you ask who touched me? Oh, but my Lord knew the difference. He said, I felt power go out. This is a different kind of touch. Many a time on Sunday morning, I've watched the people go out and I've wondered how many ever touched him. And we're thronging him here tonight. I wonder how many have touched him lately. If you're desperate, you will. 
We're a pretty comfortable crowd, and yet you're not as comfortable as you look because there are people here tonight with all kinds of headaches and heartaches and pressures. It's church problems with some of you. It's domestic problems with some of you. It's health problems, financial. Some of you don't even have assurance that you're a child of God. Do we have any desperate people here tonight? I get weary sometimes of people who can take it or leave it. Just comfortable. I'm not talking about run-of-the-mill needs. We could all sing, oh, how I need Jesus. I don't mean that. Do you have an extra special desperate need of Jesus tonight for yourself or somebody else? Now, don't try to think it up. If you have to think it up, forget it, because if you've got it, you know it. This poor woman didn't say, now let's see Jesus of Nazareth going through town today. Do I need anything? She was one lump of human need. I like to think there must be some desperate people at Ben Lippin. You may not look like it tonight. You may try to look pleasantly like things are all right, but any desperate people here? 